The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles and open them to Leviticus chapter 3. And tonight we are going to continue our study of the peace offering. And uh, as you see in the title of the message there, this is a picture of fellowship with God. And for two weeks we've worked our way towards an outline uh, of this offering. This evening we finally arrived to get to that. And uh, I did ask for a little bit more time tonight. Uh, It's going to take a little bit more time to finish this up rather than to go into uh, another sermon on this subject. But I tried to give you a lot of uh, background information in these uh, past couple of weeks to help you understand that the peace offering is, is one of the most important and gratifying offerings for everybody that had a part in it. Now, the Bible speaks of, of peace with God, and most of the time when we think of this issue of peace with God, we're, we're thinking of the end of hostility between us and God because of the violation of God's law. Uh, God is the righteous judge, and since he is righteous, he must enforce the penalty of the law against us. Against us. But the world mostly misunderstands God when we think about who God is. When we hear this phrase all the time, God loves you, God loves you. And there's nothing wrong with that phrase, of course. God loves you. We continuously hear that, but we don't hear the other side of things. We don't hear Psalm chapter 7 that says, God is angry at the wicked every day. And so to the world, it's as if God overlooks our sinfulness and he sets that aside without any need of justification from the guilt of sin. Recently, I read about a controversy, or I read actually this controversy, uh, in which a preacher made a statement that sounds good, but is actually a very grave theological error. And he was giving an illustration, and in a tear-jerking illustration, this preacher said, God loves you so much that he broke his own law to save you, that he set aside justice and condemnation of the law in order to bring you to him. Now, be at peace for just a moment here, that that's not somebody that you know who said this. Uh, This was somebody you don't know, and uh, what he said here is actually a monumental travesty. We cannot magnify the love of God by claiming that God broke his law for love because love, or rather the law, is the expression of God's character. This is what we studied in the Ten Commandments. The law is the expression of God's character. And so if God breaks his law for any reason, he becomes self-contradictory. He can't be God. God always abides faithful. And so to break his law is to break holiness. And if he did, God would deny himself. So the greatest expression of God's love is that he kept his law, and so emphatically did he keep it, that in order to save us, he had to pour out all of his wrath on someone else. He poured out all of his wrath on his own perfect, sinless, beloved son. And he had to do that because our sins would forever keep us from God. And so there is no peace with God because of sin, So we have to be reconciled by Christ. That's his work on the cross to do. Now, the the peace offering then, just using these words, peace offering, it, it sounds like the objective is to reconcile us to God. But this offering is not for that purpose. Now, I mentioned in our in the last message that that view of the offering would picture the lost as they come to God with their offering. Well, the sin offering covers that. That's what we're going to talk about the next time. Uh, We'll begin a series on on the sin offering. And that's where the lost sinner comes and is reconciled to God by an offering that's made to satisfy God. But this offering is not about the sinner. This Or not as the lost sinner. This offering is about a believer. This is about the child of God as redeemed. That he comes into intimate relationship with God because he has a relationship with God's Son. We are in him And therefore, we have fellowship with him. 
And so we're able to enjoy this, this sweet communion and we are perfectly content and completely satisfied with the life that we have in Christ. So this is the basis of the offering. It is a sweet savor offering because it speaks of the communion that the Father has with the Son. And since the believer is part of the flesh and bones of Jesus Christ because we are in Him, then we're able to enjoy this fellowship, this intimate fellowship with God that He had with His Son before He ever even created the world. So these are the words that we find that describe uh, the pictures in, in the peace offering. It's contentment and satisfaction, communion, fellowship. And so every participant in this offering walks away with good feelings. God is satisfied, and the priest is satisfied, and the people are satisfied. Now tonight we're going to start the outline, and I'm not sure how that your copy appears on the printed page, but mine has subdivisions in the chapter, and they're broken out according to the, to the different animals uh, that are used for sacrifice. And so that makes a very good outline for us to follow in dividing this offering up into its typological meanings. Now, if you look at the first part of the chapter, beginning in verse number 1, the instructions for each animal that's used in this sacrifice follows this particular pattern. So we look at verse number 1, And if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. And he shall offer of the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards. And the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, which is by the flanks. And the call above the liver, with the kidneys, it shall he take away. And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is upon the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering made by fire, a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now, each of the following sections uh, mentions a different animal, but the process for each of these animals is the same. So that raises the question in our mind, why different types of animals? Why are there different ones instead of just one animal? Isn't one animal sufficient to, to give us the entire picture that we need? That's what we're going to discuss in this study tonight. So let's explore the difference. Why are there these different animals of the sacrifice? So number one, the first thing that we talk about is the offering from the cattle that we've just read about. And that stands for reconciliation. The offering of the cattle stands for reconciliation. Now, the burnt offering, remember, that's the first offering that we discussed. That was also sweet savor, and it represented reconciliation. It was made for atonement, but it's not atonement in the same sense that we usually think of in the sin offering. Again, that's the thing that comes next. Now, now since there's no satisfaction for sin in this offering, this tells us that this is reconciliation based upon the life of Christ and not on his death. This shows that the offerer has his trust in God. He continues in communion with God because of the life of Christ. And our communion with each other is grounded in that as well. It's because of the relationship that we have with Christ. Now again, the scripture says that we are members of his flesh and his bones. And so therefore being a part of, of his body, all of us being a part of his body, we also have to be a part of each other. Now, in this, this is, this is how the peace offering foreshadows uh, the New Testament believer who becomes a part of the Lord's church. And so we have here in, in the peace offering, in this part of it, the reconciliation, a great Old Testament picture of the church that, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, is a complete mystery. Nobody knows this part of it. That's not revealed until the New Testament. In Ephesians 5.32, Paul uh, called that the mystery of Christ and his church. And part of that mystery is the gospel and the communion of believers and this very, very special relationship that the Lord has to his church. Now, there are two ways 
that the life of Christ is seen in the animal of sacrifices that forms the basis of peace. The first is that God knows the value of Christ, the value of him. Now, the part of the animal that's consumed in the fires of the altar is only the portion that's offered to God. That is the signification of God's part of the offering. Now, that, that's the way that they would signify that God partakes of it, that God eats of it. That's what the burning is for. And the portion that's offered to him, out of all of the animal, the portion that's offered to God is the very best part of the animal, considered to be the premium part to the Israelites of the animal. So you have the fat from various parts of the body. That's considered to be the best. And that was offered because that symbolized God uh, receiving the best, God giving the best, us giving the best, everything involved in that. The best is typical of what God did for us in the riches and the treasures that are found in Christ. And I, I might even mention that uh, we can make the point that cutting up the animal, getting to the fat, can signify that no one is ever going to know the value of Christ until they get on the inside. There wasn't much on the outside of Christ that attracted people to him. In his flesh, he was just a very ordinary person. But they were attracted by external things. Things like he fed them. Uh, he healed them. But the luster of the external quickly faded away and they crucified him. And that shows that the wicked heart, once it receives the external advantages that it wants, then it doesn't care about Christ any longer. You give me what I want. Satisfy me. I don't care about anything else. So people will talk about the good works of Christ, all the good things that he did, Nobody's going to criticize Jesus because he did good works. You don't find anybody doing that. But you do find people that are very irreverent about Christ. Even as they speak of the good works that he does or that he did, they're irreverent about him. You hear people use Jesus as, as, a, as a joke, the butt of a joke. They never accept who Christ is. They will not let Christ into their company if they know all there is to know about him. So most people want the words of Christ. They want the peace and they want the contentment. Things that are not intended for them unless they're willing also to take his words of judgment and his words of condemnation and the words of conviction that he speaks. So they discover they can't truly be a part of Christ. They really don't want any part of him. He's good but they've never actually tasted of him to know that he's good. So we might see that part in this offering. Christ is, is valuable. He is more valuable than all the worlds that he created. Colossians 2 verse 3, and, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so instead of turning inwardly to self to find contentment, the Christian life is always a treasure hunt. It's a wonderful thing about being a Christian. It's always a treasure hunt. We're continually pursuing the hidden treasures that are in Christ. That is what this whole series of messages is about. This is why we go into the Old Testament and we explore all these offerings because we're looking for Christ and we're trying to dig out all the jewels and golden nuggets that are found in these sacrifices. Paul wrote that knowing Christ was his pursuit. This is his life. He said that I may know him, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. You know how we know more about Christ. We know him through his written word. To know the written word is to know more about the living word who is Jesus Christ. And so as you study the word of God, you'll also find this out, that the church... The church is where you are to be to increase your understanding of God. God gave communion of his people. He gave the communion of fellowship with his people, blessed fellowship. And through that fellowship, we increase intimacy with Christ. The, the Bible clearly tells us the church is his body. And as we fellowship with the body, then we become actively closer in fellowship with God. 1 John 1, 3 and 4, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This is a very, very simple principle. The joy of a Christian is found in full fellowship. In the fellowship of God's people. And so this is what we need in church. We need closer fellowship among the people. We need care and concern for each other. We are to give our lives in the service of each other. That's what makes the church a place of peace. Christ taught that. He did that through his life. And God counts that life's value of Jesus Christ the only reason that he accepts us. Now the second thing is that God knows the dedication of Christ. We find in the study of these, of these sacrifices, there, there are parts of these that overlap with others. We find things that are repeated, principles that are repeated. It's as if what God wants to do is to put a, a stamp of importance on these things. He wants to be sure that we get this. So we look at the burnt offering. The main point that's conveyed there is the complete devotion of the Son to the Father's will. It is called the whole burnt offering because Christ gave everything to the Father. And we see the very same picture repeated here. This is signified by burning. Verse number 5. And Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar, upon the burnt sacrifice, which is upon the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now the difference in meaning has to be very carefully thought through as we keep in mind the purpose of sweet savor and non-sweet savor. Those two things, and we've talked a lot about this, those two things are the main determiners. We do not want to overlook the distinction between sweet savor and non-sweet savor because otherwise we conflate the offerings and we obscure the meaning of each. Sweet savor, again, tells us this is about Christ's life. The altar is a place of burning, and what that stands for is the trial of fire. It's the place of judgment. Burning on the altar shows that Christ was tried in his life and found perfect. He was judged sinless by all the trials that he overcame. And I keep repeating that because we can't lose the focus on this. This offering is sweet savor. It's not about sin. We can't picture Christ as sinful here because we get sin involved in this offering, then the sacrifice of the type, the type is ruined. Now, just like Moses uh, was a type of Christ, and when he, and, uh, or rather, when, he, when the rock in Horeb was a type of Christ, when Moses struck that rock the second time, that ruined typology. And that's why God was so upset about it. And this is why I tell you, if you are a teacher in the church, when you read a text like this, pay close attention. Be accurate. Don't assume that every sacrifice is about sin. Now, for example, we looked at Ephesians 5, verse 2, where it says, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, I've noticed that there are many commentators that don't emphasize the difference between sweet savor and non-sweet savor. If you don't separate those then you're going to miss the significance of this offering that comes next, the sin offering. What makes that different from the peace offering? It's one sweet savor, life. The other's non-sweet savor about death. Now, if you, if you just open your Bible to Ephesians 5, verse number 2, where, where this scripture is found, and just kind of look around it, you'll notice the context of it. You see what surrounds it. Sometimes when you see a, a chapter division in the Bible, people assume, uh, just assume, all right, well, there's a new subject introduced. Now we're going to talk about something else. And that's why they put a chapter division there. So you think, well, there's a new subject that's introduced at the beginning of each chapter. But you look at this one, and you see that verse number 1 begins, Be ye therefore. And that means this is a conclusion of something. This is the conclusion of what came before in chapter 4. And what do you see in chapter 4? You see the Christian life. It's all about the Christian life. And so the beginning of verse 2 in chapter 5 is the Christian walk. And what is the Christian walk? That's the Christian life, isn't it? It's all about life. So the context of Ephesians 5.2 is that we model our life after the life of Christ. That's what makes it a sweet smelling savor. 
And that's what ties it into the Old Testament sacrifice. It pictures the perfect life of Christ. That verse is not talking about the aspect of Christ dying for sin. Some commentators catch the distinction. Many of them don't. I know we all make mistakes. I make mistakes as we, as we uh, look at the Scriptures. And um, I'm not saying that what you have to do in order to understand the Bible... To be effective with the Bible is to guard every little nuance of Scripture. And if you don't do that, heresy is inevitable. You're going to to run into heresy. So I'm not going to tell you, you're going to ruin somebody's faith if you look at Ephesians 5, 2 and say, well, that's about the death of Christ for sin. You're not going to ruin anybody's faith if you said that. But it's not strictly accurate either, is it? Because that's not about his death for sin. That is about... His life, the perfect life that he gave his life as a sacrifice, not necessarily his death in the sense of dying. So, um, you read different commentators. Some make the mistakes, others don't. And if they make the mistake, it's not the complete picture. And we're not going to get the exact meaning unless we do exactly what we're doing here tonight. Break it down, look at it. How does that compare to other scriptures? So why do we spend so much time Going through these obscure symbols in the Old Testament that nobody ever talks about. This is a perfect example of why we do it. Ephesians 5, 2, to you, will always mean something different now that you... I've explained that, right? You'll always look at Ephesians 5, 2 different when you see sweet-smelling. Because now you know, oh, we're talking about the life of Christ here. Not death for sin. So in your personal study... You, you're enriched by these distinctions. You learn more about Christ. You see various aspects. And this is the purpose. This is God's purpose in the Old Testament of demanding sacrifice on top of sacrifice so that we see many different pictures of Christ. So the life of Christ, that's a holy life. Holy. A holy life is the thing that made him pleasing to the Father. Now the question for us as sinners is this, is it possible for us to please God? Some say no. There, there, I would say, probably few preachers that preach more on the depravity of man than me. You know, I stay on top of that subject almost, almost to the point that you probably think this is just too depressing. Uh, he's just always talking about how depraved we are. Um, but we need that, and we need to preach that. Spurgeon said, our doctrine lays men in the dust. Now, unfortunately, there are not a whole lot of people that understand radical depravity, and so they argue against the inability uh, of man to believe the gospel without the operation of the Holy Spirit enabling them to repentance and faith. And so when you, when you hear me preach, you, think, you may think, well, the hole is just too deep. We can't ever please God. But we have to remember things like Peter who quoted from Leviticus when he said this. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Right out of the book of Leviticus. We can be holy. And there's a power in us that can make us holy. That's the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. In his humanity, who was it that Jesus always relied on? He always relied on the Holy Spirit. Uh, He was given the Holy Spirit without measure. All the mighty works that Christ did in his humanity were done through the agency of the Holy Spirit working in him. And do you know that the Bible says the same power works in us? The Holy Spirit is given to us to sanctify and enable us to keep commandments and be enabled to a life of holiness. So here's the thing, folks. We are free from the law for our justification. We are free from the law for justification. We all know that. We are not free from the law for our sanctification. We, We are justified sinners And our sanctification, our holiness cannot be maintained without the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Well, I'm ready to move on to the second animal. And and, and if you just hold here a second as we begin this part, I want to tell you 
that each animal is different in its symbolism. There's a different symbolism in each animal. So we come to next the offering of the sheep. The offering of the sheep is about identification. The, the, sheep is in verse, the sheep are in verses 6 through 11. And if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering unto the Lord be of the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offer a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Now you go on and read the rest of that, and you find the pattern, the same pattern of the offering of the cattle. The lamb stands for identification. There are multiple references in Scripture referring to sheep and shepherds, and to us as God's people, as sheep, as Christ, as our shepherd. We are the sheep of his pasture. John 10 is a great place to see that. Jesus is the shepherd who leads his sheep out of the sheepfold. He said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Luke 19, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And do you remember the story that follows that statement? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. You know what it is? The story of the 99. And this is where the one lost sheep is out there and the shepherd goes to find it. And I wish that I had time to deal with that parable because that one lost sheep is just a wonderful picture of the effectual grace of God. That he calls the sinner with effectual grace. He seeks the sinner that he determines to save. And he does not fail to bring him home. He never fails to leave him out there. He brings him home. Now with the cattle, the offerings from the herd are usually associated with the servant aspect of Christ's work. The, the oxen, they're the beast of burden. Uh, gospel icons that you see when they depict Mark, they, they always... Uh, depict Christ in Mark as an ox because Mark's gospel emphasizes the servant aspect of Christ's work. But the lamb is different because the lamb almost always speaks of identification. In John chapter 1, what does it say? He is the lamb of God who became flesh and dwelled with us. That Christ became human flesh in order to identify with us. Hebrews says, in all things it behooved him to be made like his brethren. Isaiah 53 says, we are sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. And because of that, we need what? A shepherd. We need a shepherd desperately to guide us in the right way. So we thank God for Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. So this close connection between sheep and shepherd just keeps showing up in Scripture. And Israel's greatest king was King David. He was a shepherd. And who is David but representative of Jesus Christ, the king of all kingdoms, who is the great shepherd who will sit on David's throne? Now let me comment again on something that you might not expect to see. Because we notice in, 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 the, in these offerings it says male and females are brought for sacrifice. We talked about that in, uh, some, uh, some time ago. But male and females are brought because this offering symbolizes fellowship. In Christ, neither male or female is excluded in fellowship. Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In our communion, there is no distinction between male and female. If there was, our Lord's Supper observances would look quite different than they do. We would look at Jesus, and we would look at, well, there are men at the Supper. They're all men. Then we go back to the Old Testament, and we'd see, well, all the sacrifices are male sacrifices. And so we would conclude, no female animals, no women at the Lord's Supper. Well, that would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be for me, because some of the most responsive people in Lord's Supper observances are the women. I almost never fail to, when I'm, when I'm down here in front, going through the, all the things we do here at the Lord's Supper, I almost never fail to see Jim's wife, Nancy. And almost always in Lord's Supper observances, I don't remember a time when she does not leave crying when we've gone through that. The females, the women are responsive to that. 
And I, I, think it's, I think it's good to notice these things about Scripture. Why males and females? Well, the Scripture never crosses itself. Paul, who is, he said, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, says there are no males, there are no females in Christ. And do you think that him saying that, that, that you know, his spiritual understanding trumps, trumps ours by miles, doesn't it? Do you think him saying that as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that something's not striking him in the brain here because the Israelites don't treat women this way? Now in Christ, things are different. And so the Old Testament sacrifice, he goes back, he recalls that, and now it crystallizes in his mind what the Lord taught him about this. And so do you remember what he said in Galatians chapter 1? There, he said in Philippians as well, he, he said he exceeded the Jews' religion above all his equals. He was more zealous of the traditions of the Father. He said what he knew about the faith was not taught to him by flesh and blood. It was taught to him by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then, in the Lord's Supper, in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, he begins it this way, For I received of the Lord that which I delivered unto you. This is the thing that God taught him. Paul did not mention females by accident in Galatians 3. These things don't happen by accident. And you know what his discussion is in Galatians 3? Anybody know? His discussion is the law. The law of God. That's the whole subject there. The law of God, which includes sacrifices, keeping of commandments. All that's in Paul's consideration. Now, let's consider two aspects of identification. First, the offering is God's best. God, in His abundant love and mercy, chose to be identified with us. There is no reason in us that God would do it. We rejected Him. We sinned against Him. Isaiah said we all went astray. Romans 3, 10 to 11 says none of us understands, none of us seeks God. A few days ago, I, I kind of mentioned this this morning in the forum class, but a few days ago I, I heard a preacher say that if someone seeks God, if a heathen in a far-off place where the gospel has never been preached, where it's never, been, it's never reached, if he should seek God, then God is obligated to send him a preacher. But I'm sorry about that. According to Romans, that person does not exist. There isn't one like that. If he seeks God, it's only because the Holy Spirit is there seeking him first. That's the only way this is ever going to happen. Now, one of the mysteries of God's choice of animals and symbols is why that Jesus would become a lamb when lamb, when sheep, always go astray. Well, the only answer that I can give you for that is because... He was made in the likeness of man. If we're sheep, he has to be a lamb in order to identify with us. He never went astray, but he did demonstrate what a sheep should always do for its best welfare. What should a sheep always do? Listen and obey his shepherd. Anytime the shepherd gives a command, obey it and you stay out of trouble. So God gave his best. He gave the one who is spotless. And he didn't make a special creature for it. He didn't, he didn't send an angel for this. God came. He became flesh. He's the second Adam, the perfect man, sent to do what the first Adam could not do. Secondly, the offering is our best. Leviticus 3.6, And if his offering for a sacrifice, a peace offering unto the Lord, be the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish, the best animal. And that, this offering is consistent with the others. Only the best animals are brought. And in this, in this type, the one who offers that animal identifies with the animal. It, it, it represents giving our best to the Lord. Now, when I spoke about this uh, some time ago, we talked about the hermeneutic for Israel as they interpreted the commands. They didn't understand the same things that we understand. They, they, they didn't see a lamb representing Christ they didn't have the New Testament text of John 1 to tell them that. They couldn't see Christ the perfect man, but they did know this. God never accepts anything but the best. And, and if you bring him the best, that means that you recognize his worth. You recognize and respect his authority. So you know where you stand in relation to him. God is not going to let you keep the best for, himself, for yourself because you are less than him. That's a simple thing. You're less than him, so you can't keep the best for yourself. From the very beginning, 
God expected that. Adam knew that. The first generation after Adam knew that. God was not going to let this principle pass. And so we read in Genesis 4, verse 4, And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. So two words that represent the best in that picture, in that scripture. Firstling and fat. The firstling. Give God the best first, the first thing. Fat stands for the best part of the animal. Now we're, we're, we're going into overtime a little bit here tonight. Uh, we're going to keep going. I have too much. And I, and I just have to mention this one little tidbit of information in Leviticus 3 verse 9. That there is a part of the sheep that they brought that they didn't bring of the ox. In the middle of verse number 9, it says, And the whole rump, it shall he take off hard by the backbone. Now why does it say that? Why, why does this, this, this animal, the sheep, it talks about the rump. Do you know why this is? Well, that refers to the tail. The ox has a long, skinny tail. And the sheep in Africa and Egypt and Arabia are called broad-tailed sheep. The tail has a lot of fat in it. And so they were told to get all of the fat. And so the tail is added when it talks about the offering of the sheep. Now, these are more things that you need to know. You didn't think you needed to know this. You, you didn't know you gained so much knowledge on Sunday nights. You'd miss this if you weren't here, because here we got fat behinds in a Sunday night sermon. Now, in our communion with God, then, we sit in His, his presence. We've, we've got to know our place. God gave His best for us. So what would ever make you think that God would accept less from us? He gave the best. Why is he going to accept less from us? Well, he won't. So this is what we, we consider in our service. Is God pleased with our service? Or is our service half-hearted? See, there's a good reason that we call for self-examination in communion. Uh, we, we need a moment of confession because communion with Christ is not accepted with half-hearted devotion. So we consider this, and everyone should, is your service to Christ anywhere near giving your best to God? Now the third animal is an offering of the goats. This stands for satisfaction. Verse number 12, and if his offering be a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord. The goat, almost always in the Bible, is associated with satisfaction. One of the four coverings of the tabernacle structure was of goat's hair. On the Day of Atonement, satisfaction was graphically demonstrated by using two goats. And I don't know, I, don't, I really don't know why I thought of this, but it struck me as I was writing the sermon how that Satan is a master counterfeiter. The depictions of Satan in, in mythology, in religion, is that of a half-man and a half-goat. You've seen those kinds of pictures. Nobody actually knows what Satan looks like, but this is the image that stuck for centuries, that Satan is a satyr, a half-man and a half-goat. Now, I, don't, I doubt that that is nothing less than a counterfeit mockery of Christ, that Christ was both deity and humanity and pictured as a goat in the Scriptures as a satisfactory sacrifice to God. And what does Satan always do? He always steals the things of God. And so this is going to show up in the end times when he steals the aspect of Trinity, the Trinity of him, of the Antichrist, and of the false prophet. Well, a goat's used in other offerings where sin is pictured, not just this offering, but in, in where you're talking about sin. It's there, the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. That's about sin. That's the most obvious one where you see both propitiation and expiation that are symbolized with goats. And don't worry about those two terms right now because we're going to get to that later on in a, when we get to the sin offering. So in the big picture, Christ's life is the satisfaction of peace for everyone. First, in this offering, God is satisfied. The offering pictures that God is pleased with His Son. Second Peter 117, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God is satisfied in nothing but his Son because the Word of God says all things were made 
for him, made by him and for him. And he's satisfied with you and me only as we're comprehended in Christ. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us in the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Colossians 1, 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, if you read... All that goes before in Colossians 1, you see the superlatives of Christ that shine through. All hope is anchored in Christ. God was pleased that in him all fullness should dwell. So God is satisfied with Jesus. Why? Because he is the human expression of the perfection of God. This is why he kept all the law perfectly. He is the human expression of the perfection of God. So God is satisfied with the offering. Secondly, the priest is satisfied. That's a very special part of the offering. And I want you to think of priest, not as Aaron, not as a man appointed to this position, but think of who the priest represents. He stands for Christ, who's the great high priest. So the priest is given part of the sacrifice. This is in Leviticus 7, 32 and 33. And the right shoulder shall he give unto the priest for a heave offering of the sacrifices of your peace offerings. He among the sons of Aaron that offereth the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right shoulder for his part. Now, th- this, this, this section here is really precious because Christ is both offering and the one who offers. He gave himself as the sacrifice. He offers himself to God. Now the question is, all right, he offers himself to God. How is he satisfied? Does he get anything in return? Oh, yes, Christ gets something in return. He gets a people for his name. And pay attention to this. He gets the one that, ones that are given to him by the Father. He gets all that the Father gave him. John six thirty seven to 39. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Why is Christ satisfied? Because he gets them all. He gets all of them. You know, sometimes I want to hold my breath and just turn blue at people who do not get particular redemption. These Old Testament sacrifices illuminate that doctrine of living color. Imagine that Christ would be satisfied to give his life for all, but not get all. How would he be satisfied with that? Is the Father going to hold back on Christ? No, he gets all that's promised him. He died for them, so he gets them all. And they come to him. Because the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father to draw them to Him. They're not going to lose out here. He quickens to life. And they repent and believe. So you tell me how the great high priest is going to be satisfied with anything less. God said, I'm going to give you all of them. Then he better get all of them that are given. Thirdly, the offer is satisfied. The one who offers has satisfaction in this same offering that satisfies God. Now, you, you, you listen here again that the, the sin offering, in the sin offering, there's no satisfaction for man in the sin offering. He doesn't share in the food of, of a sin offering. Only God does. God is satisfied. And the priest is satisfied because the priest represents Christ. So he's satisfied, but that offering has nothing for man in it. That's because satisfaction is not made to man in a sin offering. It's made to God. This is why Romans 5.11 needs more explanation, where it says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. What does that mean? It means we receive reconciliation with God. That's the translator's intent here. We don't receive satisfaction as a propitiatory propitiatory offering. Only God receives that. Now, amazingly, though, there are some people who believe that in the atonement, satisfaction was made to Satan. Did you know that's the doctrine of the Word of Faith movement? That's what Kenneth Copeland teaches. 
That's what Joyce Meyer teaches. I would say that Osteen teaches that, but I don't even think he even knows what atonement is, so we can't pin that on him. So in the peace offering, in the peace offering, we're satisfied, and that's typified by the priest's children getting apart. That's what we find in Leviticus 7.33. He among the sons of Aaron that offereth the blood of the peace offerings and the fat, he shall have the right shoulder for his part. Who are we? We are children of the great high priest. We are children of Jesus Christ, and we are satisfied in him. So the person who comes to Christ, finds there is nothing lacking that he needs. He never hungers and thirsts again. Now, to all that information I just gave you, you need to add the previous sermons about fellowship and communion. So that brings us full circle to the last part that's offered, and I don't need much time to finish this because the first two sermons fit in right here. Fourthly, in this, there is an offering of cakes. Not just the animals, but cakes, and that stands for communion. Leviticus 7, 11 through 13. And this is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which he shall offer unto the Lord. If he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mingled with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour fried. Besides the cakes, he shall offer for his offering leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offerings. Now, all that information I gave you at the very beginning that wasn't part of the sermon, 2 Corinthians 5.21, now I want you to think about what I just said there. A few comments on this and we'll close. First is the doctrinal, then the practical. There is both leavened and unleavened cakes that are acceptable in the offering. Now, it seems strange to see leaven because we know that leaven is a type of sin. The unleavened cakes represent the sinless Christ. That's why we have unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper. The Savior is perfect without any sin. So why are leavened cakes allowed? The unleavened is Christ. The unleavened is Christ. We are the leavened. The Lord's church on the earth is saved, but still sinful. We are justified, yet still sinners. We will be made perfect, but now we're still sinful. So what the Bible says is that Christ will bring a chaste bride to heaven. She will be glorified before she ever gets to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But that's then. This is now. So the wonderful picture that we have in leavened bread in the peace offering is that God will fellowship with us even though we are sinful. And the reason he will is because we are covered in Christ's righteousness. We're justified in him. So God looks at Christ when he sits with us. And he fellowships with me, those sinful, because of the unleavened Christ. That's the doctrinal. Now here's the practical. Everyone, though sinful, joins in fellowship. The meat and the cakes are representative of God's people celebrating together. Now, now stick here. We're almost done for a very practical lesson. What is one of the main activities of the church in fellowship? One of the main activities. Food. It's always food. Um, maybe it's the Lutherans that are known for the potlucks. I don't know. I heard somebody talk about, you know, if you're a Lutheran, you've, you know, the potluck in the basement. That that's, shows you're a Lutheran, whatever. But food, that's what draws people together. Food. Have a food fellowship. Fellowship around food does what? It brings people together. When you want to have fellowship with somebody, almost always that you come over for supper. Come over and eat with me. Food is for fellowship. Now, we have two major food days during the year. Uh, this is not a necessarily a biblical thing, but I mean, it's, we're allowed to do this. We have two special times where we have a special meal. Those two times are Father's Day and Thanksgiving. And we have some minor ones along the way occasionally, but those are the major ones. And on those two times, we don't have an evening service. Now, let me tell you something. Food is important. Fellowship is important. It's our service. We're not missing anything because we don't have a Sunday night service. We have the fellowship over the food. And so what we have is another aspect of the life of a Christian in fellowship with God and with each other. Our food fellowship is a worship time. It's worship time for God's people. 
So God's people together as the body of Christ enjoying each other at a time of fellowship over food, that is a holy experience. Why do you think in Acts chapter 2 it keeps talking about they continue the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread from house to house day after So it's food. It's a, an experience of worship. And yet, there are some that leave and go home early. And so they take the absence of the evening service as a sign that early departure is fine. That's acceptable. So they shove aside the fellowship as if that doesn't matter. Now, I'm not mad at anybody, but I'll tell you this. If you're in the leadership of the church and you don't stay for the fellowship, shame on you because the time of fellowship is the time for us to get together and get close to the people that you serve as a leader in the church. Now, can you imagine that anybody in Israel would say, Oh, it's just a feast day. Let's head out early. Well, sure, you'll do that if you want a lightning strike on your head. That's not going to happen. The peace offering is about the church in fellowship. We are a church in communion of fellowship. And leaders are not leaders if they haven't done their job when they walk, if they walk away in important times of fellowship. So that's my... Closing pastoral shepherding word for you. Come together as they did in the peace offering and be satisfied with Christ and in Christ, with his body, satisfied in his body and the fellowship that he gave his life for. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you, Lord, for time we spent together in your word, beautiful, beautiful aspects of Jesus Christ found in the peace offering. Lord, help us to be a church in fellowship, a church that loves and cares for one another, a church that, that seeks uh, in our fellowship with each other the deeper things of the word of God, to learn by them and learn more about you. Help us tonight, Lord. We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org